Welcome to the Out of Privilege podcast with Dr. Byron Burkhalter, where we will talk about issues of racism, white privilege, and the role they play in current affairs. We take an historical and sociological look at various issues and how they have laid the foundation for the systemic racism that the United States in particular is battling today. I'm Genevieve Haldeman, and I'll be your host. In today's episode, we talk about the history of affirmative action and why it is making a resurgence today as the Board of Regents for the University of California Schools has voted to reinstate it amid a decline in diversity among their student population. Take a listen and let us know your perspective in the comments. Today, we uh, are going to talk a little bit about affirmative action, and um, there's been some interesting progress in that area in the last month. The uh, University of California Regents have um, voted to support an effort to bring back affirmative action uh, to diversify its student body across 10 campuses amid declines of minority groups in more than two decades since the practice was outlawed. And what that effectively does is it supports the repeal of Proposition 209, which was a California statewide measure in 1996 that banned the consideration of race and gender in admissions decisions. Um, admission, uh, I'm sorry, Assembly Constitutional Amendment 5, which would repeal uh, Proposition 209, passed with a 60 to 14 vote last week in the State Assembly or a, couple, a month ago in the State Assembly. And that would uh, put the measure on the November 3rd ballot if it passes with a two-thirds majority in the state Senate. So it's interesting because California had a, uh, you know, this, this Proposition 209 um, was the California Civil Rights Initiative, which uh, was a constitutional amendment banning public institutions, including schools, from practicing affirmative action within their respective states. Um, and so it's interesting to see it brought back, especially in the context of everything that is going on. So Byron, do you want to start by giving us some historical perspective of, uh, of affirmative action and, and let's start talking through it. So I think I'd like to start with just my own personal history. Um, what you get, um, is the segregation of black and brown people which has to change after the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Fair Housing Act of 1968. And so what you need is some way to actively segregate against legislation uh, that is integrationist on its, on its face. And so what initially what happens is institutions um, are attempting to show that they are no longer a segregationist, um, you know, for their own reasons. And a lot of the focus of this is on uh, hiring practices in corporations um, and in uh, universities and colleges around the country that start to have um, goals that they're looking to, to set. And so this is coming about over the, over the, over the 70s. Um, I'm born in 1965, and so part of my own personal history is uh, not an official uh, public sector affirmative action program, but as uh, part of an immigration wave that comes out of that legislation. 
So initially the high school that I go to, I, I grew up in an all black neighborhood and I mean all black Oklahoma, completely segregated Northeast side. I will go to a high school that I don't believe ever had um, a black student before our graduating class. Although I think there were two black students there before we got there, but not in the high school. So as we come to the high school, we're integrating the high school. And the reason to integrate the high school is football because this is Oklahoma. And what's desired is to be able to win football games against other uh, private schools. And the thing about the private schools in Oklahoma is most of them started after uh, it became apparent that Brown versus the Board of Education was going to integrate their public schools, uh, perhaps through busing. And so that's where you get all of these private schools working to segregate themselves. And their reason to integrate in the late 70s, again, is football. And so after my school goes after, um, comes to a Catholic school that I was going to, uh, which as I recall was, tuition was maybe $60 a month at that, at that Catholic school. I think that included the bus. Everybody who scored higher on a test that the school gave at my school uh, got a scholarship. And so one of the reasons I want to emphasize that is because I want to emphasize that there was a business interest, that there was a, a motivating desire to win football games, which in Oklahoma is a business interest. And that's what brought uh, integration. Now they took everybody that scored higher than that particular student on the test. And so that's sort of the moral part of it. And so later on, at some point, I'm probably going to refer to the business case for affirmative action, and then the moral case uh, for affirmative action, and that's why. In the neighborhood that I come up in, um, you go through, you would have gone through, I would have gone through Douglas High School, very low percentage of students who then go on to get degrees. At the school that I go to, 100% of the students had gone to a four-year college. For the entire history of the school, which is to say, no one, didn't go to college in the history of the high school that I would attend. That's the college preparatory school. So my first uh, flip on affirmative action would be all of these wealthy kids were going to go to college. Do you really think it's because they were all excellent students. The first affirmative action to look at isn't the affirmative action that brings black and brown kids into the school system, that brings black and brown recruits into the organization. The first to look at is, where'd all these white people come from? How do you think they got to where they are? That's the affirmative action program that we should be focused on. So politically, which you get across the country during the 70s, is a wave of anti-tax um, movements, uh, particularly in California with uh, Howard Javits. I may have his last name wrong, Javits movement. Um, and what all of these are going to do is try and starve the public school systems, which are bringing in more in black, black and brown people um, and at the university level, the University of California, which to this day does one of the best jobs 
of bringing economic and racial diversity into higher education. The idea was to starve them out. So you'll hear, hear tales of going to Berkeley, basically tuition free up until this time period. And it is no longer tuition free. So there's two movements. There is an affirmative action movement that is going on in public university systems and in some corporate hiring. Um, IBM would be a great example of a company that did a fantastic job with this, uh, given the times. And then secondly, a political movement to starve out affirmative action that goes along the same time. Uh, sometimes we talk about this as sort of a backlash. So by the time you get, well, really, the Reagan revolution is the beginning of the end of that affirmative action wave. That's where the um, government is the problem slogan, where uh, you get the lawsuit starting. Obviously, the federal government at that point stops um, fighting for uh, diversity and inclusion in these places. And it starts to wane. Now, I get to high school in 79. As I get to college in 83 at the University of Oklahoma, there is still an affirmative action program. Um, I have, a, I think, a 27 on the ACT, which is a pretty good score, but it wouldn't necessarily get you a scholarship or anything like that at the time, as I, as I recall. And so I got in. Well, getting in wasn't really the problem. I could pay for college because of the affirmative action program. More importantly, after I uh, flunked out two semesters or three semesters later, I could do what almost no poor kid could do, which is I could get a second chance because Oklahoma needed to make those numbers. And there was nothing about Oklahoma's school system that was trying to produce black kids that could meet those numbers. So for me, I could go mess up, come back, and eventually get a PhD at UCLA because that affirmative action program was there just as I'm there. Like it's literally becoming effective in 76 with the election of Jimmy Carter. By 88, it's really gone away and is no longer something that white liberals will defend actively. So by the time you get to Obama, it's a bad word. And nobody, you know, on either side of the political structure really wants to, to deal with it again. So that's how I think about the history. So what's interesting in, in my research, uh, I saw a commentary, the fact that it dated back to the reconstruction era. Um, what we currently know as affirmative action was started by John F. Kennedy in 1961. It was supported by President Johnson after that. And by the way, it wasn't just about black and brown people. It was race, creed, color, national origin. President Johnson added religion and sex. Um, and you're right, the political appetite changed for affirmative action around Reagan. Um, but I think, you know, in our last podcast, we talked a little bit about the GI Bill and how that could be seen as affirmative action, but in a very different way. And so I'm curious your perspective on, you know, the full scope of affirmative action and the fact that it isn't just about black and brown people. The, I think women have benefited tremendously from the affirmative action movements in terms of moving into business, moving into management positions over the course that it was really in effect. 
Um, and so this isn't just about black and brown people. No, and, and one of the things that I probably should emphasize is, is that it wasn't just the desire to keep out black and brown people that was at the forefront of that anti-taxation movement. Women moving into positions of leadership in unions was one of the things that made it hard for unions to maintain solidarity. I mean, the sexism here is at least in the same arena um, as the racism. So let's go back then. What we talk about right now as whiteness could simply be seen as affirmative action, like from the very beginning. Because the idea was, we are going to hold you above. We are basically going to put this ground below your feet, and you cannot fall below that. We are going to carry you through. That was the original deal of whiteness. Now, what's really nice about it for those in power at that time, it would have been landowners, and I'm here sometime in the 17th century, even before the Constitution. What's nice for them is the affirmative action didn't actually have to offer very much to those propertyless whites who were going to see who were going to be seen to have an advantage. All you had to do really was put the non-whites in a terrible position and then say to those propertyless whites you will be above them so you didn't really have to add anything you didn't have to give them any capital or anything like that there were jobs there was work there would be income but there would never be a sharing of the wealth so here by affirmative action what i'm saying is is by virtue of your membership in the group of whites you will have help staying above a certain socioeconomic climb. Then what you get, the next time you really see this is, starting with the 1840 wave of immigration, although probably not taking effect until just before the Civil War, and then um, going through the wave of immigration uh, that would keep going until the 1880s. Uh, now, new immigrant groups over time become part of whiteness, which in the way that we're talking about it here is to become eligible for the affirmative action program. And so this would mean the ability to get uh, public service jobs. Uh, you would be able to, be, to work at the post office. You would be able to be police officers. You would be able to attend uh, July 4th celebrations in parks. You could be in any public spaces. Over time, you could marry across other affirmative action groups, other white groups. Um, usually, um, religion here was sort of the dividing line. Catholics would tend to marry Catholics. Protestants would tend to marry Protestants. But again, you could live wherever you could sort of afford to get into. And there was always somebody below you that would let you know that you had it pretty good. And so that would be sort of a second wave of affirmative action. And then for us, the most important wave of affirmative action, as you brought up, is the GI Bill. At this point, we're going to uh, more fully let in Jewish Americans. We're going to more fully let in 
um, Chinese Americans. And um, probably the most important part of this affirmative action program that sort of carries from the New Deal but is um, enhanced is the ability to buy a house on credit in particular neighborhoods with others who are also eligible for this affirmative action program. So what I mean is, if you could buy into white suburbs just after World War II, this was all of the difference we see today. So what I mean by that is you bought in to your house for a few thousand dollars. As there were economic booms, particularly that post-war boom uh, that would extend, oh, wow, um, into the 60s, I would say. Um, you bought in at a certain price, but your house appreciated pretty well for the times. Um, and over two generations, we're talking about the difference between white wealth and non-white wealth can almost all be tagged at that point in the you know, 40s, 50s, even 60s of giving, getting into the housing market because the appreciation in your home is what paid for your kid's education. Education is how the middle class transfers its wealth to the next generation. So when you have capital, you don't really have to be smart. All you need to be able to do is hire people to manage your money. So the richer you are, the less important education is. Um, and I won't speak to our, our current inhabitant of the uh, White House as evidence, but you, you can draw your own conclusions about such things. Um, so what you have to do is you have to transfer your skills and your credentials to your children. And in the middle class, the way you do that is by having them go to college or university, preferably one of the more important colleges or universities, uh, John Hopkins, Stanford, MIT, Harvard, uh, Yale, uh, the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania are some of the um, you know, more important ones that come to mind. Obviously, there's some public universities uh, University of Michigan, uh, I would put Berkeley in that, in that category. Um, and so what you're able to do, as long as you got that house somewhere in that time period after World War II, and it's appreciated because those neighborhoods would have the better schools, those neighborhoods would have police who actually serve them instead of uh, hunting them. And because of that, there was more demand for those neighborhoods. And so you had a greater value on your home. That gets put into the education and the credentialing of your children. That meant that your kids could get particular jobs and take particular resources. So in that way, it is completely an affirmative action program. Now, if you're black or brown, you can't move into those neighborhoods. What you would find is, uh, and I was just looking at this in terms of Dallas, Texas, but literally as black people tried to move into those neighborhoods, there would be bombings, like their homes would be bombed and no one would ever be arrested for these sorts of things. Like through violence, they were kept out. And so they didn't have the equity in their homes that allowed them to send their children to those universities. 
many of which wouldn't accept them, certainly in the 40s and 50s, anyway. And so the difference we see today was part of a intentional affirmative action program that wrote out black and brown people that helped boost now this next section of non-white people into at least a state of conditional whiteness. And that is literally the world we're in today. And what you're going to find is those people that were boosted, and now I'm talking about, uh, the, the, let's say, the, the run-of-the-mill whites, everybody you would think of as white, plus Asian Americans and Jewish Americans. And the, the Asian Americans in particular is a little more complex than I'm making it out to be right now. But what you're going to find is those people just don't have interactions with uh, the Latinx community and with black, the black community. They just don't have the hours in it. And so they don't, they no longer have to make the intentional decisions to stay segregated. It's all an automated process, but that is the affirmative action of the country. And so how did uh, the, uh, racial dynamics enter into the affirmative action approach. Uh, why did they put that, uh, why did President Kennedy put that in uh, to an executive order in 1961? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I don't, I don't know, I don't know if I entirely understand Kennedy's motivation for it but you are coming out of the Eisenhower years. And so one of the great successes of that um, Republican administration was the integration of the armed forces. And so my feeling is, is that, and this is, um, this is speculative, so I would be happy uh, to be corrected about some of this, but I think that liberalism at that time saw an opportunity. And I think the Kennedys in particular were liberals of this time, that you could bring in integration that had worked, you know, starting really in World War II with some of the units, but that Eisenhower had sort of implemented uh, by fiat, um, and that you could even politically break off some of those, uh, they used to have these things called liberal Republicans, that you could break them off towards the, the democratic cause. And I'm not trying to say that Kennedy didn't honestly believe in some forms of, of this. Now, I just wanna say one other thing about that. What you get from liberalism, um, what you get from the Democratic Party's version of liberalism, as we understand the Democratic Party today, is political, equality, um, and then a, a, a slight increase in economic equality, and a little bit less increase in social equality. So if you want to make sure black people can vote, that's within the liberal agenda. If you want to make sure that police aren't just beating black people, that's within the liberal agenda. If you want to make sure that they can live in the same neighborhoods as everybody else and that they will be able to, that's where it gets dicey. 
that thing where we live together was always kind of the limit. I should also say, and I, I missed this before, but there's a civil rights movement in the country coming out of the veterans coming back from World War II that by the time Kennedy gets there is 15 years old and is fairly mature using a system of uh, black churches in particular uh, that begin to have political effectiveness that the Democratic Party simply can't ignore anymore. And so, you know, a lot of this seems about, you know, the difference between equality and equity in terms of uh, creating a level playing field for minority groups. And again, not just black or brown people, uh, but minority groups that had previously been discriminated against or didn't have the same opportunities. Um, but there's a lot of, um, I guess the political narrative in Reagan's era really shifted. And a lot of the messages coming out now are very focused on, um, you know, the negatives around affirmative action, um, you know, that it will increase racial tension. I don't hear a whole lot about, you know, increasing gender tension, but it certainly will increase racial tension and they'll be upset about that. Uh, they talk about reverse discrimination. Um, I'm curious what, you know, what your take is on the, the political narrative that came out in the late 80s with Reagan that has uh, seemed to perpetuate even to today. I mean, when you listen to people talk about their objections to affirmative action, it is the narrative that sort of found, was founded in, in those, uh, in the late 80s with the, with the Reagan times. So, I think I would start with Reagan's um, image uh, riding a horse with his hat. Reagan played a cowboy. Like that's who kind of he was. Now, I think we have this idea that the image of the cowboy, you know, goes back into the country's history some period of time. And, and and there were cowboys. There was actually a lot of, um, that was a place you could be black, like in the country. A lot of cowboys were black. A lot of them were Latino because a lot of them were indigenous because they knew the land, right? But that's not what we're talking about with Reagan. We're talking about the image of the white cowboy, the Marlboro man, you know, that guy. That guy is really more of a 50s kind of, person, right? And what he represents in part is that radical individualism that exists out of context by himself, just him and his horse. Uh, he doesn't even need, by the way, uh, a woman, a partner, or anything like that. Usually she gets into trouble and he has to go do some things and then he goes back to where it's quiet. Um, but part of that is that individualism, right? Uh, not helped by anybody. You don't know who his parents, his family, his ethnicity, his history. None of that comes out. Just a dude on a horse. Now, this would be the thing that fought affirmative action, that would fight unionization. Like that image and him at the very top of that image is what was against solidarity. The, the Hillary Clinton slogan of we're stronger together, uh, cowboys don't do that slogan. They do it by themselves. 
And as we become enamored of that image, what stops that image from being real? What stops us from being that beautiful, solitary American on that horse is the government. The government comes and takes our taxes and gives it to those people who don't really understand a man and his horse. You know, not really. The government comes and takes from those of us who do know, gives it to them. The government comes and builds them up and then teaches them these crazy sort of socialist ideas. Um, and, you know, they're in union, standing in solidarity across races. And you know what? There's no horses. There's no horses at all. There's no great open landscape or anything like that. Reagan's image was that. And what the, company, what the country was buying at the time was that individualism without any understanding of context. And what I want to stress here is the cowboy doesn't really have an origin. In the way that we tell the story, the cowboy is a, is a native. He just comes from the land. Like when you see the, the beginning of the Western, the cowboy on his horse coming out of nowhere riding into town. And at the end of the movie, he rides back into nowhere at all, completely timeless. I mean, it's a lovely image that we've, that we've crafted, you know? And so that's who Reagan, that's who we were in the Reagan era. And so that's going to fight against any idea of understanding history, understanding perspective, figuring out where your people were helped, um, looking at the ways in which you've been given privilege, the ways in which you've been given affirmative action. It all starts right there where you're at. And if at the point that we stop it, these people are getting help by the government, then that's anti-American. That's stopping who we are. What I think is interesting in terms of the, the criticisms of affirmative action is that the criticisms themselves are also contradictory. So, for, you know, there's one criticism that says these people don't deserve it. There's another criticism that says it undermines their achievements. And so it's almost like they're throwing anything they can at this to see what's going to stick and who's going to uh, connect to what message. Um, but I mean, there just seems to be swirling around, you know, contradictory notions of why affirmative action is bad without actually getting to the, the root of it or the root of their criticism, which is fear. I, I think that's exactly right. Right. I think you are dealing with fear and that the criticisms are not um, a play in a free speech discussion where the exchange of ideas um, is brought into the public marketplace and then we decide based upon reasonings. Power has to maintain itself. There is a, a quote that I'll, that I'll probably use every time we have one of these because at least for the meantime, uh, I'm enamored with it. I think it's Ruth Gilmore Wilson. Um, Capitalism requires inequality. Racism enshrines it. So what the power structure has always needed to do with the affirmative action program is 
maintain the insecurity of those eligible for the program, for those whites, particularly the newest versions of them, particularly those that don't sort of, that don't fit into our perceptions that we might not immediately see as white. What you need to do is you need to work on their insecurities. So there are two things that have to go at the same time. One, they have to feel that insecurity. They have to feel like they may be slipping and that other group might be rising. So there's that insecurity. Then you have to explain that the reason the other group, the non-white group is down is because of elements of the non-white group, their character, their culture, their biology, it's natural, whatever the reasons are, right? So those two things are, are the ones I think you identified and they are in a broader context contradictory. But in a context where you have to keep white people a little insecure, a little worried, you really do need both because they need to justify why those people are down there and they don't want to say, well, we're keeping them down there because it goes against the moral quality. But at the same time, they need them down there. Their identity depends upon them being down there. And so what you're going to see is um, the anger that comes when during the recent protests that there is all of this violence, that there is looting, uh, that there is, you know, fighting, uh, and it's dangerous out there, right? But at the same time, you're seeing violence in white communities for being asked to wear a mask. You have people that are running over protesters on closed freeways, right? And those protesters are trying to say, when they're, they're lined up blocking the freeway, see what it's like to be powerless for just a little bit, right? And that anger comes, you know, sp spilling out, right? So again, it's not that it's a fairness thing. It's that you have to say, well, if you all would just work and stop protesting, you would be able to come up if you were able to do this, if you were able to do this. Again, it's that individual out of context thing that says we got to our position because of what we did. You need to get there based upon what you did. But at the same time, if the government, if the liberals, if the Democrats are sitting here and hoisting you up, trying to hoist you up higher, well, you're trying to take away our power. You're trying to take away our country. You don't understand our ideals because just the way that you're pushing them up goes against our ideals. That's not the cowboy way, right? So it's both. And they feel aggrieved. I think it's, it's interesting you talk about the individuality uh, because more criticism talk about how affirmative action encourages individuals to see themselves as a disadvantaged. And again, the contrary uh, criticism to that is that it also, there's also this concept of, of mismatching, which is um, because of affirmative action, 
people who benefit from that will see themselves in a situation that they're not actually qualified for. So it's both that they are, you know, that they're more qualified than they should be, they shouldn't be seen as disadvantaged, but also that they're not qualified to be where they are put by affirmative action. So again, I'm just, it's, it's amazing to see the contradictions of the, the criticisms and that it comes both ways. And I mean, the, the, I think the people that are meant to, to be helped by this are kind of squeezed in the middle. So I think what's, I mean, again, this is where the flip helps. The flip allows you to go, you know what, you're right. This affirmative action program that has put white men above everybody else for only the entirety of the country's history has done exactly what you said. I am a product of the affirmative action that they're talking about. One of the benefits that I've had is that I meet people in all walks of life who are astoundingly mediocre. I meet CEOs of successful companies who are children little boys helped out by a bunch of other people saying, oh, no, 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 he, he's, yeah, really smart, no doubt, smart, like all of these people around them, holding them up. How many white men in this country are not qualified for the position they're in? In fact, if it wasn't for their ability to bully women, how many of these companies would already be run by women? Like if it wasn't for their abilities to have an affirmative action program called venture capitalist companies, how many of them would even be CEOs of companies? They've been given everything and still you go and meet them and you think, wow, is that it? That's all you got? That's the whole thing? Think about the Delta. Here I am. I got helped a couple of times in high school and in college. Big deal. I mean, it really is a big deal. Think about where I came from. Think about, you know, I got into Boston University, but I couldn't have paid for the housing, much less the tuition. It was never going to happen. We were literally just laughing when the bill came in. There was no way. Think about the Delta I came from. Think about my mom. She's 17, one of 16 children in Louisiana is married and divorced as a black woman in the mid 50s with a one-year-old child. Her two kids have a PhD and a master's degree. Think about how far she came. When you go look at these white men, how far did they come? What kind of delta have they crossed? Could they have been my mom in that little shack in Louisiana and made it to the position that they're in? Oh yes, there's no question. We have people above their station. And once again, I'm not going to bring up the current occupant of the White House. That's up to you to make those sorts of decisions. But my God, it's staggering. And how much trouble is this country in right now? Because we have pushed these white men into positions for which they are in no way qualified. What is driving the resurgence of um, the discussions around affirmative action and the willingness of organizations like the UC system to reinstate it, to bring it back. I mean, is it, it can't just be, you know, George Floyd, right? This is, um, those types of, of issues have been happening for years and no movement. And so what's driving it today? 
you know, I think there's, there's different levels. It's not so much that it's George Floyd, but it's what happened to people watching that video, even the short version. And I'm not totally sure what that was, but I, I would kind of like to go back a little bit. To me, the beginnings of this have to do with the worldwide protest against the World Trade Organization and then the Occupy Wall Street movement, which I think created a bit of a radicalization um, against capitalism. Um, and, I, and so I think that that's one stream that's coming up. I think the second stream is probably the Black Lives Matters uh, organization and the, the video in the video quality um, since the uh, police beating of uh, Rodney King um, and, and through the, the current time and the effect that that has had on white liberals who are, again, most concerned with political equality and not social and economic equality. So they're not so much concerned that there are black people stuck in these neighborhoods, taxed and policed um, out of services and freedom. What they're concerned is that they're being beat, that they're not allowed to vote. And getting that message over and over again um, has caused a certain change in white liberalism in the country. And then I would add to that, the election of the current occupant of the White House came as somewhat of a humiliation and it gave a bit of energy, I think in particular to upper middle class uh, or professional class white women um, who all of a sudden find themselves without allies because um, a good number of white women uh, I think a majority of white women actually voted, that voted, voted for uh, the current occupant of uh, the White House. Um, and his strongest support is amongst uh, white males. Um, and so they've had to turn in this time of humiliation to those that they had turned away from with the Reagan revolution. Right? They have to go look at black and brown people. They have to go look at uh, queer people. They have to go look for allies somewhere else. And they find themselves disconnected from, from those people. And now they've got to turn back. And we're in this window where they need those groups. And so those groups are starting to say, hey, what about, and what about, and what about, and what about? And all of a sudden, it doesn't sound like the loss of Americana to bring black and brown people into the universities. All of a sudden, it sounds vital to them. So I wanna save this topic for another time, but the impact of white women, both in terms of the situation that we're in today and the potential to get us out of it is pretty significant, but we're gonna save that for another time. Agreed, yes. <laughs> All right, thank you for the, uh, the history lesson and the overview on uh, affirmative action. There is uh, a lot of work to be done and uh, we'll see how uh, the election goes in November to see if it comes, if the, uh, uh, 209, Proposition 209 gets repealed. Yeah. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Out of Privilege podcast. Please subscribe on your podcast platform or sign up on outofprivilege.com to get updated on new episodes when they're available. Let us know what you think and feel free to share on social media. 